It is good to see all of you this morning. We are in the first epistle of Peter. You can turn there. We will get there eventually. We introduced first Peter last week. We will take that introduction as a given. I will assume that everything that we said last week is what you already know about who Peter was writing to, who the audience is what the presuppositions behind Peter's writing are, and we'll just take that, as I said, as a given. This was an interesting week. This week, the Pope, yes, I'm a Protestant, so I'm going to talk a little bit about Roman Catholicism this morning. This week, the Pope decided that he uh, did not agree with the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Good reaction there. He decided that he didn't like the translation of lead us not into temptation because he said the father is not the one who leads people into temptation. He couldn't imagine that being the case. Apparently he has a God who is less than sovereign. And so he rewrote it as and don't allow us to enter into temptation. And what does that do? It places the emphasis back on us, which is the essence of what Arminianism is and Catholicism is, make sure that you're just doing enough good stuff and then God will maybe let you into his heaven based on the amount of good stuff you do. Now, the reason that I decided to bring that little bit of trivia up this morning is because we are looking at First and Second Peter and Peter is held up within the Roman Catholic Church as being the first pope even though there is no evidence that Peter was ever actually in Rome 
And some Catholic apologists even are starting to admit that and say that it doesn't really matter as long as there's the unbroken line of succession leading all the way back to the apostolic period. Well, they can't really even prove that. But what I find very, very interesting is that in Rome, in the Vatican, there is a basilica known as St. Peter's Basilica. It was built on the back of money that was raised through the selling of indulgences. That's one of the things that Martin Luther became so upset about and posted his 95 thesis about, the selling of indulgences. But they call it St. Peter's Basilica. Inside St. Peter's Cathedral, there is a statue purported to be St. Peter. There is some controversy around it because he clearly has the sundial over his head. There is some history that says that that's actually a statue of Jupiter that was originally in the Roman pantheon and was just simply moved into the Roman church. The interesting thing about the statue of Peter, now seated on a throne, is that his right foot is extended a bit, and when pilgrims, so-called, go to Rome, they go to see the statue of Peter, and his right foot is slowly being kissed away. The marble of the stone is actually receding a bit because of the amount of saliva and people's kisses and the constant friction of the lips of humans who have kissed it. I make it sound attractive, don't I? Yeah. In other words, the point being that they venerate and they worship Peter. And the Pope sits on, he claims, the throne of Peter and that he is in St. Peter's Basilica. And yet, the Roman Catholic Church would soundly disagree with the theology that we're about to see at the beginning of 1 Peter. Now, to be fair, I was raised in the Lutheran Church. And as I like to say, in the particular church I went to, Martin Luther would not be welcome. Martin Luther and his theology would not be welcome in much of the Lutheran church today. So the Roman Catholics, though they claim a great fealty to Peter, simply don't agree with the theology that Peter is about to lay out. Because the theology that Peter lays out right at the beginning of his first letter to the diaspora, the thing that he lays out is God's absolute sovereignty and the fact that human beings are brought to salvation, brought to faith, solely by the work of God through the Spirit, through the finished work of Christ. Nothing within the person accomplishes salvation. Nothing within the person accomplishes faith. Nothing within the person even brings about repentance. Those are gifts from God by his grace to those people. That is all theology that the Roman Catholic Church would disagree with. Now, of course, the reason that they disagree with it is because they don't believe that the Bible is the final authority, which is why in the days of the Reformation, the idea of sola scriptura was so important. Scripture alone became one of the rallying cries of the Reformers because the Roman Catholic Church believed in not only the Bible, but also papal authority. So when the Pope would speak ex cathedra, when he would speak from the chair of Peter, that that became standard Roman dogma. You had to obey that the same way that you obeyed the Bible. And then they also believe in the oral tradition of the church. So when you combine the oral tradition and the teaching magisterium with the Bible, of course you're going to get a tremendous amount of tradition mixed in with what the word of God says. And as a consequence, you can take, let's say, the Lord's Prayer that has stood now for 2,000 years in which Jesus plainly says and clearly says that it is God who is in charge of everything. I mean, his is the kingdom and the power and the glory. He is the one who is in charge of our daily bread and our forgiveness of sins. And you don't even get to start asking for that until you recognize who he is. He is the Father who is in heaven, and holy is his name. 
And so until you recognize who he is, you're not even allowed to ask for things for yourself. But then only if you recognize his absolute sovereignty can you say things like, and lead us not into temptation. So theologically, the Pope disagrees with that idea, despite the fact that in the Gospels we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But apparently that's not enough to convince some religious folk in silly fish hats. <laughs> Was that too harsh? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to get email. It's this. Either you are going to accept the Bible for what it says, for everything it says, for completely what it says, for exactly what it says, how it says it, the words that are chosen the words that the original writers chose to use because those words actually brought about the proper meaning that they were intending. In other words, there were ideas in their mind that they wanted to transfer to us, and so they chose these words in order to say it. Or the words on the page don't really mean anything because your traditions or your teaching magisterium or the... The tradition of the church can completely undermine the word of God and say something else. And if you don't like what it says, you can just, if you don't want to allegorize or spiritualize it, you can just simply say, I disagree with it, I'll reinterpret it, I'll come up with a different translation. But Peter is about to say something very, very specific. He is going to lay out a deep theology a theology that most churches these days aren't comfortable with, but it is exactly what Peter said. He chose these words on purpose because these words best conveyed the very thing he was trying to get his audience to understand. Had he meant something else, he'd have said something else. But he said this because he meant this. And there's simply no way that you can read these opening words of Peter without recognizing that his theological presupposition is that God is absolutely sovereign. God's in charge of everything. God is in charge of his universe. God made plans since before the foundation of the world. God foreknew certain people, and he destined those people to be eternally in his presence. That's Peter's basic theological underpinning. And it comes up over and over and over again. No sooner does Peter identify who he's writing to and who he is than he launches straight into God's absolute sovereignty. And so if you're going to say that Peter is the rock on which you've built your church, it seems to me like you would actually adhere to Petrine theology. Okay, I'm done ranting now. But I think that adequately introduces what we're about to read because we're going to take our time this morning to look at every word because every word counts. Every word matters. Peter used these theological terms on purpose because he wanted to convey to his readers that this is what God is like. And if you don't know this, if you don't know that this is what God is like, then you're going to end up making up some God of your imagination, some God that can't be found in the Bible, some God that is easier for you to digest, some God that you can chop down into little bite-sized pieces and uh, ingest more easily. But the God of the Bible is truly holy and majestic and beyond finding out. He is genuinely so far beyond human comprehension that he did everything necessary to save those people he chose, and as a consequence, those people are going to end up in glory with him. And I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if it doesn't seem fair. It's what the Bible keeps saying. Amen. Now, Paul knows, and I do mean Paul at this point, Paul knows that when he wrote, say, in Romans 9, he knows that the theology that he is advancing is a theology that will cause people to say, that's not fair. He knows that. He gets to the end of chapter 9 and says, well, then you will say to me, 
because he knows somebody's going to say it. He's expecting it to come back. Well, then you will say to me, how does he yet find fault seeing that no one resists his will? So if no one resists the will of God, how can God then find fault with people who only did what God determined they were going to do? That's Paul's question. You're going to say to me, that's not fair. That's not right. Now, Paul presupposes that you're going to get to that question. If you understand Pauline theology properly, if you understand chapter 9 and his choosing of Jacob and Esau, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, and his election of grace, if you understand what Paul has laid out, you're going to come to that question. If you don't come to that question, you don't understand Paul yet. Because Paul says, now you're going to say this. And I love Paul's answer. Because after he asked that question, you will say to me, how is that fair? How can he find fault? Everybody just did what God sovereignly decided they would do. How is that fair? His answer is, who are you? Who are you to stand up against God? Who are you, oh man? that you're going to question God. What if God is perfectly willing, Paul goes on, what if he's perfectly willing to display his wrath against vessels of wrath fitted for destruction so that he can show his grace on those vessels of mercy that were chosen beforehand for mercy? What if God's perfectly willing to act like that? Well, that's what he's like. And so even though we may not like it, we may not think it's fair, it's what it's like. And so we have to adjust our thinking, not to bring up the Pope again, but I'm going to for just a moment. We have to adjust our thinking to what the Bible actually says, rather than adjust the Bible to what we think. Because we think a great many things that are not in league with the Bible. And the Bible writers know that, that their theology is bound to make people Ask questions and say things that are, that are just not proper. And the right answer is the same answer that God gave to Job when he said, quit you like a man, stand up before me. I'm going to ask you some questions and you're going to answer me. And what did Job say? Yes, sir. <laughs> yes, sir. That, that's number one, yeah. Job said, I abhor myself. That's the proper response. The proper response is, you're God, I'm not. You're the God who controls everything, I'm not. The entire defense that's laid out in the book of Job is God saying, where were you when I did everything? Where were you when I laid the planets out or created universes or threw stars up into that? Where were you? Where are you when I'm busy feeding baby lions or bringing snow down out of the cloud? Where are you when I'm doing all that? Where are you when I'm putting a hook into Leviathan and making him do my bidding? Who are you to answer back to me? Well, that's the same answer in the New Testament. Who are you, old man? You simply do not get to reply to God because God has very graciously given us his word so that we can come to a greater understanding of who God is and what God is like. Our job is to align our thinking and our minds with how God has already represented and revealed himself. And by the way, if you want an expert opinion on God, I'm going to go with God. He would be the subject matter expert on that topic. And then he sends his own son to the planet to teach us about him. And he says... He's sovereign, he's holy, he's righteous, he's perfect. And all the way back in Isaiah, God representing himself says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. So whenever you bump into something in the Bible that you're having a difficult time comprehending, recognize that number one, God is going to reveal it to you, and that number two, you don't have the right to change it. You have to allow it to say what it says. So now let's dig into 1 Peter, starting right at verse 1 of chapter 1, and we'll read the couple of verses that we looked at last week, and then we're going to slowly 
Dig into what else Peter says because he's absolutely convinced of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, let me add one more thing. Boy, you almost thought I was done introducing, didn't you? Um, I heard just this week, because I constantly pay attention, on social media this week there was a claim that God is sovereign over big things. God is in charge and sovereign over the large things, earthquakes and floods and famines and big stuff. He's in charge of human history generally. He is in charge of. But not really sovereign in the area of salvation. Salvation is still a choice. You still decide for yourself. You make up your mind. You rev up your faith. You take the leap of faith. You do whatever you got to do to get you to heaven because God is in charge sovereignly over things, but he's not in charge of salvation was the argument. Okay, well, here Peter's going to say God's completely in charge of salvation. Because if God is truly sovereign, genuinely sovereign, then of course he would be sovereign in the area of salvation. Because what is the end result of salvation? The end result of salvation is the people who are eternally going to be with him in heaven in his presence. Don't you think he'd have some say-so over that? Here, Leon has some say-so over who goes in his house. Well, that's kind of iffy because Alex is there. But, but he has charge over if somebody comes to the door and knocks on the door. He has charge over whether or not he lets them in the house, especially if they show up with a knapsack and a suitcase and they go, hi, I don't know you. I'll be living with you now forever. Okay, you don't think that God exercises the same amount of authority over his residence? You don't think he's in charge of who's going to be in his presence eternally? Because the Bible over and over, time and time again, says that's exactly how God is. That he's in charge of who's going to be in his presence and who ends up in outer darkness. Here's what Peter has to say. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ... To those who reside as aliens, diaspora, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are eclectos, that's the word that means elected, chosen. The NASB has it translated as chosen. So he's writing to those people who are scattered out of Jerusalem who have been chosen. Now he's going to tell us what they've been chosen for. They're not just chosen for good works. They're not just chosen to be part of the community of Israel. They are chosen for salvation. How were they chosen? Because they were so good that God just got up one morning and said, you know, it's not going to be heaven without these people. I've got to get those people right here by my side right away. They were chosen Not because they were good, and certainly if you know the history of Israel at all, they're clearly not good. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Talked about it last week, so I won't go into it in any great length, but I want to remind you that here Peter is not saying he knew certain things about certain people, so he chose those people. He chose those people because he knew those people would choose him. Those were the people who were capable of having faith. And since they were capable of having faith, God chose them in advance. That's not what Peter's getting at. Because both Peter and Paul, when they talk about God's foreknowledge, whom God did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Furthermore, whom he... Whom he did foreknow, those he called, very same people. Those that he called, he also justified, same people. Those that he justified, he also glorified. The same way that Paul talks about foreknowledge, that's the way that Peter talks about him. Notice that he is not saying God knew things about people. What he knew was people. And when we talked about it last week, I said that it's having a relationship and intimacy beforehand. That's the prognosco part of it. Beforehand, The word know used throughout the Bible denotes intimate relationship. For instance, 
in the Bible at the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis. It says that Adam knew his wife, she conceived and bore him a child. Well, that doesn't mean that he just knew who she was. That doesn't mean that he just went, oh, you're not like me. Oh, your name is Eve? I find that attractive. And boom, pregnant. (laughs) That's not how it worked. They had an intimate relationship in advance. Well, that's that same concept of the knowing, the foreknowledge of God towards certain people. He has constructed an intimate relationship with those people in advance. As a consequence, he does everything else for them. As a consequence of that foreknowing, he does the calling and the justifying and the glorifying. Here, Peter's going to say, as a result of it, they are given faith. And as a result of it, salvation comes about. Because God knows certain people. They are chosen, elected, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. By the hagiosmos, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That separating work. Hold on to that idea for just a moment. That the idea of sanctification is separation. Separated by the work of the Spirit so that you may obey Jesus Christ. So in other words, if you're going to obey Jesus Christ, you have to have been chosen by the Father, and you have to have the Spirit of God sanctifying, separating you, so that you can then be obedient to Christ. Now, have I misrepresented anything Peter has written there? Because that's what it says. Like it or not, that's what it says. That God chose you because of his foreknowing, having an intimate relationship with you, separating you, sanctifying you through the work of the Spirit so that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. At the end of the week, last week, we talked about the importance of sprinkling blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Verse 3, we're now to the new stuff. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to be real pedantic this morning. I'm going to be real specific. I'm going to point out things that should be obvious, but I don't want you to miss them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, at that point, is dealing with a Jewish audience who believe that God is one, the Shema is, the Lord our God, he is one God. And now he is identifying Jesus of Nazareth as the very incarnation of the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And then blessed is God the Father, who is the Father of Jesus Christ. This is that same God who, according to his own foreknowledge, chose some people. So you can see why Peter would say, well, blessed be that God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. Really important. All the way back in John 3, Jesus says, you must be born again. You must be born anothen from above. If you're not born again, if you don't have that spiritual rebirth, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Very important, you must be born again. But notice where Peter put that born again experience. It is according to the great mercy of God the Father. So how do you get born again? I've heard preachers on TV and radio yelling at people saying, you got to get born again. Go get born again. Like you're going to drive down the road and and find the born again kiosk and say, hi, I'd like to be born again. (laughs) According to the great mercy of God, the father of Jesus Christ, he, what is the active word? Caused us to be born again. He didn't allow us to be born again. That's really, really important. It's not the language of of God just kind of being passive 
and God saying, if you'd like to be born again, I'll allow that. After all, my son died to make you savable. He didn't actually save anybody on the cross. He just, he made you savable if you, by your own free will, will just make a decision and choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Then you're allowed, if you want to, to get born again, if you want to do that. That's not the language Peter uses. The language Peter uses is, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Notice the word mercy. We have oftentimes here defined mercy as God not giving you what you deserve. What you deserve, if God was fair, remember the fairness argument a few minutes ago? If God was fair, you'd be in hell already. That's fair. What you want is mercy. And so God, through this inexpressible mercy and kindness, chose some people for the purpose of causing them to be born again. Do you see what Peter's saying? Peter is saying it's completely up to sovereign God. It's not up to individuals to choose or decide anything. In fact, you'll notice so far he hasn't said one thing about what humans do. Nothing in there about what you do. But a whole lot about what God does. And he does those things because of his inexpressible mercy and because of his grace and goodness. That's why we here at Grace Christian Assembly, at salvationbygrace.org, are so convinced of the grace of God because the simple reality is God has to be merciful to you because you can't earn it despite what the Arminians or the Roman Catholics or any of the Christians who thunder down from Sinai on you, despite the fact that there are so many people who confuse Christianity with the idea that you have to do enough good stuff and that God is then going to choose you on the basis of your goodness, Peter says the motivation here is mercy. And here's the good news. For it to be genuine mercy, for it to be genuine grace... It has to be given to people who not only don't deserve it, but can't deserve it. That would be like Christ dying for the ungodly. Oh, good. The Bible says that too. Okay, so I'm glad to know that Christ died to save the ungodly because I fit firmly in the ungodly category. That's me. Anybody else here? Yes. Yeah, we, we're just, we're the ungodly. And that's who Christ died for so that God could save people by mercy so that God gets all the glory, all the credit. He did the saving. He's the actor. You're the one that was acted upon. You are not the actor. So now Peter lays it out again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living and alive hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, that word hope is really important. We 21st century Gentiles at this moment, we're hoping for heaven. We're hoping for the return of Christ. We're hoping for the gathering of the church. That's what we're hoping for. But the diaspora, the Jewish believers, have a great deal more hope than that. Don't forget everything we've been studying in the Old Testament and why it's so important to understand the Old Testament prophets. Because the Old Testament prophets do speak with one voice that God is punishing Israel but going to restore them. And then after all the prophets have said that, then there's a 400-year gap after Malachi where God's just silent. There's just no more speaking from God. There's no more prophets. Israel doesn't know what to do. They literally don't know what to do with their objects of worship. And in fact, stored them away until a prophet came to tell them what to do. So here they are after 400 years of not hearing from God. And John the Baptist walks on the stage of history. John the Baptist, like an Old Testament prophet, 
starts quoting from Isaiah. Even the angel told his father that that's exactly what John was going to do, that he was going to make a way, pave the way to get ready for the Christ to come. And then Christ does come, and he's the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. And so after 400 years of silence, suddenly God is speaking again. Now the very fact that God is speaking again to Israel affirms to Israel that everything God has ever said about their destiny is true because God hasn't given up on them. God has now done the next step in the process, which is sending them Messiah. All the way back at Moses, Moses said that there was a prophet going to come and that the people were going to gather to him. He's going to be like me. He's going to lead the people of Israel, but you're going to listen to him. So now Messiah has come. Now Messiah has been identified. And how was he identified? Not merely by the fact that he was hated without a cause and that he was crucified, but that he resurrected from the dead. The resurrection of the dead, according to Paul, is the proof positive that Jesus is who he said he was or was who he said he is or is who he said he is. I choose any of those. I don't care. (laughs) That Jesus actually is who he said he is. And as a consequence, when he ascended up into heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We have an advocate with the Father now so that there's no longer the againstness between us and the Father because Jesus stood in the gap. Jesus accomplished everything necessary for our salvation and Jesus died and raised again. So Peter puts that right in the middle of his argument. And says, blessed be God the Father, because he's the one that chose us. And he's the one that sent his son. And he's the one that raised his son up from the dead. He's the one that seated his son on his right hand. He's the one that made his son intercessor. In other words, God did everything necessary to appease his own wrath. Since we couldn't do it. Since there was nothing we could do except fall under the judgment of God. Had God not been terrifically unfair, had God not chosen that he was going to propitiate his own wrath so that he didn't have to pour out his punishment on any of us because he poured out his wrath on his son and therefore his son as the perfect substitute didn't just try to save people, he actually saved people. When he said, it is finished, it was actually finished. When he died and resurrected again and sailed off into the blue, that was sure and positive proof that God the Father who did the electing, God the Father who through the prophets told Israel that he was going to restore them again, all of that is true because Jesus got up from the grave. Do you understand that? Praise God. Absolutely praise God. He did all that. What in the midst of all that did Conrad do? (laughs) Bupkis, you got nothing going over there. Yeah, all he brought to the party was his sin. He didn't bring anything else except his depravity and his need for a savior. That's it. But God did everything else that's necessary. That is Peter's ground level fundamental theology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So now you're an Israelite. And now you've got these promises, but now you're scattered. And you've been through the Babylonian captivity, and you've come back, and now you've got Herod and a Dumian king, and you're under Roman occupation, and you've got to be thinking, where's God? God said he was going to restore us. Where's that? And then Jesus shows up. And suddenly there is a living, a lively hope again. Now there is a living hope that not only is God not against us, but for us, but also that absolutely everything written in the Old Testament is true because the same God who said it is actively doing it. So much so that in a moment, Peter's going to say that the prophets didn't just speak by the mouth of God, but that they spoke by the Spirit of Christ. 
and they longed to look into who were they talking about and who was he talking to. And Peter's saying, I can answer that question. He was talking about us. He was talking to us. So, okay, let's keep reading. Can you see now the lively hope? You get some sense of the lively hope? Look, if everything I'm saying this morning is true, you're going to heaven. If everything I said this morning is true, you're saved. If everything we're reading this morning is true, you are saved because of what Christ did, because of what God chose, because of the spirit that infills you. That's why you're saved, not because of anything you did. And that's such good news. That takes the weight off your shoulders. You don't have to worry that your performance is living up to some standard that you can't possibly reach. You recognize that even though you are a depraved sinner, that even though there was nothing attractive in you, there was nothing in you that would make God want or need you, and that you don't improve God one iota by showing up, nevertheless, God, through his great mercy, caused you to be born again, put his Holy Spirit in you, and raised you up to a living hope. Now we can hope. Now we have some reason to hope. By the way, that's the word elpis. I have to define that every time we see it in the New Testament. The word elpis has that same root as pistis, the same word that's translated faith. Elpis doesn't mean like we think of hope. When we say the word hope, we mean, gee, I hope it happens. Fingers crossed. I hope it happens. It might, it might not, but I hope so. What it means is a constant expectation, a looking forward to, I said constant, wrong word. It is a confident expectation, a confident looking forward to what you know is coming. And so this is a living anticipation for everything that God has promised. Whether that's earthly promises of a kingdom to come with Christ ruling over it, whether it's heavenly promises of Christ returning to get his church and taking us to the marriage supper of the Lamb, all of that stuff in the Bible that seems beyond our comprehension is all true based on the fact that God chose to give us his Holy Spirit to bring us to obedience in Christ so that we are born again to a living hope that everything he has promised is absolutely true. That's why Paul can talk about us having peace that passes understanding. There's no way that Christians should be peaceful in this world, this God-forsaken world, this very difficult world where just a little virus you can't even see can suddenly fell you for four weeks. A lot of people in the room can testify to that one. And yet we have this peace and this hope because we know what God has done for us, because the Spirit of God within us makes us born again, makes us live, gives us faith, brings us through the repentance, and brings us to a confident expectation that all the rest of it is true. Based on, according to Peter, based on Jesus got up out of the grave. If he didn't come up out of the grave, none of that's true. But if he got out of the grave, everything else in the Bible is true. You understand that? When Jesus was asked about marriage, he gave an example that went all the way back to Adam and Eve. He went back to Adam and Eve. He confirmed the early part of the book of Genesis. True, genuine history. Now, if he doesn't get up from the grave, it's pretty easy for us to say, well, he didn't know what he was talking about. But if he got up from the grave, not only does that confirm that he is the Messiah, but it confirms the whole of the Old Testament because he went on, when he was on the Emmaus Road, went through all of the law and the prophets showing everything that had to do with him. So he confirms the reality of it. Jesus confirmed Noah. There's kind of an unbelievable story. Whole world flooded. Eight people lived. Well, Jesus says that's true. So if Jesus is confirming the word of God 
and then he rises from the grave, that's the proof positive that everything that's in the Bible is true. I've had people argue with me against the Bible based on some story in the Old Testament that they just couldn't accept. They either didn't believe that the sun stood still or they didn't believe that that Noah was actually in a boat with all those animals. or they, they, There was some part of the Old Testament that they just couldn't wrap their brain around. I had a woman once tell me that she didn't believe the Bible because she couldn't accept the virgin birth. Since she had a couple of children, she couldn't accept the idea that a baby could be born without a man's participation. But the Bible says that happened. And if Jesus got up, out of the grave, then he is the subject matter expert. If he got up out of the grave, he's the closest thing to God you need in this lifetime. If he got up out of the grave, then whatever he says is true, is true. And he confirms that the Old Testament is true over and over again. So I don't have to base my faith on the virgin birth of the sun stopping or the world flooding. I base my faith the same place that Paul does. On the resurrection. If the resurrection is true, the whole rest of it is true. If Jesus didn't get up out of the grave, let's all go home. There's lots of sinning left to do. (laughs) But if he got up out of the grave, he has every right to lay himself on you and say, I am your Lord and Master. Follow me. And you'll follow. The same way Peter and Andrew followed, you'll follow. You may not be able to explain it, but you'll follow. Like Paul who said, I have yet to apprehend that which has apprehended me. That's a remarkable thing. I've yet to figure it out, but it's got me. There's nothing I can do about it. Okay, so that's Peter's theology. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To, he's still not done, the sentence keeps going, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. The sentence continues, but let's pause for just a moment. Peter does something interesting here that you don't see in the English language so much. He takes three words, the word for perishable, the word for defiled, and the word for fading away. And all three of those words, he sticks the alpha negative on the front. So he's reversing all three of those words. And he says that what he did in his resurrection was obtained for us an inheritance, but not just an inheritance that might happen, might not. Where if some greedy relative gets there first and changes the will, you might lose your inheritance. No, instead, the inheritance that we've been promised is imperishable, which means moth and rust, corruption, doesn't get to it. It's imperishable and it's undefiled. It's a pure inheritance. And it will not fade away. It's always going to be. It's an eternal inheritance. The inheritance that God has promised us and proven by the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And on top of all that, it's reserved in heaven for you. In other words, when you get to heaven, you're able to say, why, yes, I do have a reservation. (laughs) And God's going to open the Lamb's book of life that was written before the foundation of the world, according to the book of Revelation. And in that book, your name exists since before the foundation of the world. In other words, you do have a reservation. God knew from the very beginning who was going to wind up in his presence. Before he made anything or anyone, he had a plan. And his plan is working right now in human history. And he's bringing certain people into his presence. And when they get there, as glorious and wonderful and marvelous and 
incomprehensible as that's going to be, he's going to be well within his rights to say, I knew you'd be here. I planned it since before the foundation of the world. I have a reservation for you, a reservation that doesn't fade away, that is imperishable and perfectly pure and undefiled. That's my intention for you. That's too much for me. That made, that made Leon go, yeah, it should. It's so far above what we can begin to think or ask. It's the marvelous, glorious grace of God doing for us what we can't begin to conceive of. And yet, that's the God of the Bible. That's the God who is guaranteed by the resurrection of Christ. He has brought us to a living hope that we will inherit something that is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. Oh, goody. Not amen. Oh, goody. I'm so happy about that because I know me. And I know Todd. Not as well as I know me. I know pretty much everybody in this room. And I I know where some of your flaws and peccadilloes are at. And I know that if we start navel-gazing, if we start looking internally, if we start looking to see if we're good enough or if we're justified enough or if we can self-justify our activity, I know me well enough to know that there's just plain nothing good enough in me that God would possibly save me. And when I start looking at me, I get scared. When I start looking inward, I find nothing but dead men's bones and all uncleanness. When I look inside me, I get worried. How, how, God, can you save somebody like me? That's scary. says right here, I'm protected. And my protector is the Almighty. My protector is the Sovereign One. The one protecting me chose me since before the foundation of the world and has already called, justified, and glorified me. So that's why my inheritance is imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away. It's reserved in heaven for me, and I am going to get there definitely despite me because I'm being protected. That's really good news. Because... If you're anything like me, and really, I I just hope you're not. But if you're anything like me, you worry that between now and heaven, maybe you're going to do something, or maybe something's going to come up, or something. But we're going to make it. Preservation of the saints, perseverance of the saints. The reason we believe in that is not because we think we're going to be good enough or strong enough that we're going to maintain our faith all the way to the end. That's not it. It's because we know that we've been chosen by a sovereign God who is actively protecting us while we walk on this earthly plane. In other words, if you didn't do anything to get you into this relationship, you can't do anything to get you out of this relationship. This relationship is secure, not based on you. It's based on the faithfulness of God who doesn't change. As a consequence, you can say with great confidence, I'm saved. I'm saved by the grace and the mercy of a glorious God who's working out all things for his glory and my good. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. That's the theology of the Bible. So we obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It is reserved in heaven for us who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Where did Peter take it? Right to eschatology. (laughs) Right to the revelation of Christ in the end times. 
and there is a salvation waiting to be revealed, not just for us, not just the gathering of the church to Christ to ever be with the Lord, but there is a saving, a national saving, a national institution of Israel at the return of Christ in the end time. All of that is true. That is what the Bible says, and it all occurs as a result of Christ getting up from the dead and everything that God has planned since before the foundation of the world. And you, you, you're just a bit player in this drama. You're, you're just on the stage of history doing the things that God foreordained for you to do. But he's working his plan. And thank God, bless God, glorify God that he chose to include you in the big plan of salvation. The end result of everything God has done in giving you this inheritance that is reserved in heaven for you, protecting you by the power of God, and then producing faith in you, the end result is a salvation that is going to be revealed. Now let's talk about that faith for just a moment and we'll call it a morning. Jesus Christ, according to Hebrews 12, Jesus Christ is the author and the finisher of faith. That means you didn't start it, you don't continue it, Jesus did it. He is the author and the finisher of faith. That is why I argue over and over that when Paul wrote that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, that he is saying that the salvation, the grace, and the faith are all gifts of God. It is God who decided that his son was going to die for those particular people who he chose before the foundation of the world and wrote their names down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Then he sent his son to redeem those people, and those are the people that he put his spirit inside. And because you have the spirit of God inside you, you do something that the whole rest of the world not only doesn't do but can't do, which is you come to faith. You come to repentance. You recognize your own sinfulness, your wickedness, and God's holiness. That's a gift from the Spirit of God. And then the Spirit of God puts peace to faith inside you so that you will be obedient to the things of Christ. And what is the end result of that faith? Your salvation. Good plan, God. Good plan all the way across because I'm safe, I'm secure, I've got an inheritance waiting on me that doesn't fade away, that isn't defiled. Okay, everything from verse 3 all the way through verse 5 that we read this morning was one sentence. Where is Peter's theology? I mean, he's right at the beginning of this letter and he lays out this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Next week, we'll address the next sentence. It's worth taking slow. It's worth figuring out what he's saying because he's saying magnificent things. Amen. Yes, sir? Well, since the scriptures are God-breathed, the scriptures have, forgive the pun, a ghostwriter. And it seems to me especially in view of the last thought in the book of Revelation, that anybody who attempts to change one word in that in the scriptures is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Prove me wrong. Yeah, and asking for trouble. Yeah. And would you go so far as to say they had a Holy Ghost writer? Yeah. Okay. One person thought that was funny. Green please. <laughs> Anything else? Questions about this this morning? I tried to make it, like I said, as clear and pedantic as I could make it. 
This is what we believe here at Grace Christian Assembly. This is what we promote. This is what we preach and teach and put out there for the world to hear. And, and sheep hear it. Sheep love sheep food. <laughs> Nothing? Really? Very good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.